Okay, so let's dive in. Okay, so we're going to be talking about the truth about late in life moves. And the subline of that, or the byline of that, is prioritizing what matters most. So by a show of hands, how many of you are excited about making a future move? Raise your hand. All right, two out of an entire room of about 55 people. Congratulations, ladies. All right, good. So in there on the front row, what does that tell you, right? Okay, good. So I'm going to just talk with you guys, right? We're going to hang out together. And uh, so most people are not excited about moving. In fact, uh, the research shows that moving is one of the most stressful events in a person's life, rating more stressful than getting married or divorced, having kids, or starting a new job. Okay? Uh, and I work in that industry. Good for us, right? And uh, there's lots of reasons for that. We all know what those are, but that's what the research shows. Now, these people would beg to differ. Um, and I just, I, I I saw these pictures and I thought, I want to show you. These are just um, eight of the people that we've helped downsize in the last you know, few years, and they're happy, right? So how does that cross with what we saw that moving is the most stressful event of your life? But these people look pretty happy. Now, I want to point out uh, that you know they've already moved and it's done, right? This wasn't during the move. This was after the move. Right now, I share that with you because um, this is kind of our fun thing. I actually have, so I actually brought one of those little signs. So what we do is at the end, and we'll talk about this at step 10, is we have this little sign, and we ask people to do a little jig. And the reason for that is because they've gone through a lot, right? And they, <clears throat> and they have gotten to the point where they can celebrate, and it actually feels pretty good at the end. But at the beginning and in the middle, it can be kind of overwhelming. So we're going to talk about how to lessen some of that stress. Some of you were at the talk I did a couple of months ago on communicating with adult children. Um, I want to point out this, this slide because this is it's actually a, um, a measurement that they use, physicians and medical professionals use. Uh, as it relates to someone's level of independence or lack of independence. And most everybody in this room, I would say, is somewhere between one and three, okay? And sometimes people are at three and they go back to two and then they go back to one, right? But so everybody's somewhere between one and three. They're either very fit, they're well, or they're managing well. Sometimes what happens then is we say, you know what, I'm gonna stay put, I'm not moving anywhere, I'm doing great, I'm living in my own house, where everything's wonderful, or maybe you're thinking about a family member or someone who uh, are helping caregiving responsibilities. And so what happens is they're managing well, but then all of a sudden they're not. And maybe that's because of an illness or a disease process or a fall. Uh, it could be for a lot of reasons. And so they go into what we call vulnerable and then maybe frail, and then maybe a little bit more frail, and so on and so forth. Now, where do you think moving is the easiest? Right? Yeah, that's kind of a, an obvious uh, answer. And then uh, when someone is either at, say, uh, six, seven, eight, and of course, nine, 
uh, moving becomes much more challenging, would you say that the priorities around moving are different for people in one, two, and three than they are for anybody who is four through uh, nine? Yeah, right. So the priorities are different. And so when I'm talking today, I share that with you just to put into context that your priorities, if you were to move now or uh, in the foreseeable future, may be different than somebody who is moving uh, should they have some issues uh, either physically, cognitively, uh, or otherwise, okay? So let's talk about some of those myths and truths. And I'm gonna go, kind of just go through them with you uh, as, we, as we talk here. But before I do, I want to bring up that one of the things that occurs to me, and I teach a class at SNU called Family Crisis, and the first class was last night, and we talk about what is the definition of stress, and what is family stress uh, in particular. And stress, by definition, is any time there is change, and the equilibrium is off, right? Our equilibrium is off. Something's not normal. Something's out of balance, right? We have stress. And sometimes stress is good, sometimes it's minor, sometimes it's short term, but sometimes it can be um, harder to deal with. But I thought, you know, there's also a thing about our thinking that can create overwhelm as it relates to moving. Not just stress, but overwhelm. The number one word we hear when people think about moving is overwhelmed. It feels or I think about it as overwhelmed. And our goal is to take that word overwhelmed and and change it. Okay, to give people where it's manageable, it's more simplified. But if we change our thinking about something, about anything, then we can change our experience of it, right? Our perception uh, in many cases dictates dictates how we experience things. So if we think something's going to be easy, it's oftentimes more easy than it would be if we go into thinking that it's going to be difficult. So let's talk about these myths as we go through here. Number one myth on your sheet there is when moving due to health or healthcare needs, including cognitive health, the priority is how the residence looks and how close it is to family members. And that's the myth. Now you might think, well, how is that a myth? Like, shouldn't it be that the priority is how the residence looks and how close it is to family members? I will say that when people are helping a family member, particularly a parent, if a, if a person is helping their parent move, 99% of the time, those are the two things that they're looking for. How the place looks, does it look appealing, and is it close to them? Well, that's a selfish reason, by the way. Right? And when I ask, is it so that you can check in with your parents, the answer is usually no. It's usually because it's more convenient for us if we're needed. Okay, now that's my first bombshell for you. Okay, so that's another reason that I tell people to plan ahead for what they want because your adult children, oftentimes, that's their criteria. So the truth under that one is when moving due to healthcare issues, which I hope nobody has to do, by the way, the most important priority is the care provided. Everything else is secondary. Now, under that, for myself, I made a note that for moving, for, the, for today's conversation, the priority for a move 
when there is a healthcare issue, is to get from point A, the current house, to point B, the new place, in as healthy a condition as possible. Healthy. When Chris and I first started helping people downsize and move, it was largely, or most commonly, the clients were moving into assisted living. And it became evident right away that a lot of people would go straight from their house, they'd move into that next community, and then they'd go right into the hospital. I'm like, why is that happening? Why are people going into the hospital after they move? And part of it was stress, part of it was uh, fatigue, part of it was dehydration, part of it was they had a fall. There's lots of reasons. And our mission became to not let that happen. Our mission became to create a solution so that when people got moved, they did not need to go to the hospital. And that's kind of what still guides us um, when we're working with someone moving into a healthcare environment. So just kind of keep that in mind. The priority is about health at that point. Now, as I said, most of you in this room are not in that place. Most of you in this room are in one, two, or three. You're healthy, you're capable, you're able-bodied. So let's look at the next one, myth number two. Moving to a new place in your later years is the same as it was in early years. Okay, reality check. Too much stuff. Why are some other reasons different? Your energy, right? I have a six-year-old grandson, and when my granddaughter was six, she's 11 now, I felt like I had lots of energy. I could go all week long with her, and now, uh, only, what, five years later, I'm like, oh, heavens, I'm going to have to get a nanny if Maverick's here. Right? Because my energy level is different. Well, his energy level, by the way, is different, but that's a whole different story. Right? His name is Maverick, if that tells you anything at all. Okay? What are some other things that are different about moving now versus when you were, say, in your 20s, 30s, or 40s? New neighbors. New neighbors. But how, is that, how does that affect you personally? So, yeah, so you're, you're, in a, you're in a position where you're moving to a community where you're, there's lots of people, maybe hundreds of people, and you don't know them. And it's different than when you were younger because you had kids maybe, and those kids kind of got to know people and you learned to meet people that way. It was easier to meet people when you were younger. I, I know it was for me when my kids were in school. It was easy to meet people. Now you have to put out more effort. It's much more difficult. Yeah. Good. What else is different for you? We heard stuff, we heard energy, we heard technology. Technology, absolutely, who said that? Yeah, thank you. Yes, technology is different. You know, a lot of the things we have to do now, uh, to set up now, are all online. You have to go online, online to change your... You have to go online to change your utilities. You have to go online to get a mover. You have to go online to do virtually everything. And it's very difficult in some cases. Um, Cox Cable is different. Um, that's a lot of fun when you move, right? But one of the most fun things to do is deal with Cox Cable. Um, so there are many things that are different. And by the way, here's the other thing that's different. How many of you ever had a friend move you in their own vehicle? <laughs> Yeah, 
their kids or your kids or somebody moved you in their own vehicle and how did you pay them? Pizza and beer, right? Yeah, that doesn't happen anymore. When my friends ask me to help them move that we'll buy you dinner, I'm like, forget it. I would much rather hire you a mover and pay the thousand dollar bill than I would come over and load your couch, right? Yeah. Okay, so then uh, the, the truth behind that one, while we may be capable of doing what we did before, our stamina, our recovery time, and our physical strength may not be what it was when we were in our younger years. Now, as it relates to moving, the priority for the move is to surround yourself with the necessary support so you have the strength, the stamina, and the brain power to do the things that only you can do. Because there are things that only you can do. And if you're too exhausted to clean out your closet, for instance, and decide what clothes to take because you've been busy packing your china, then you end up taking everything in your closet and you don't need everything in your closet. Does that make sense? So if you leverage the things that somebody else can do, you have more energy to focus on the things that only you can do. And that's really kind of what we focus on is what, what can you do and what is it you only can do? I, I can't go through your file cabinet and tell you what documents to keep or let go of. I can't do it, right? Yeah, yeah. brings up a great point. You know, as you age, your working short-term memory is reduced somewhat. And so now you've moved and everything is, is you, you're having to find your way around and try to locate it. Absolutely. Our Chris's mom just moved. Um, our team moved her while we were in Austin. And she came back and everything was put away and everything was in its place. And uh, the only thing that they really didn't do was hang pictures because she and I planned to do that ourselves. And so when she came in, uh, I thought, oh my gosh, I thought she'll be so excited because everything is going to look perfect. It's going to just look beautiful and it's, and it's all in it. Like, and she comes in and she goes, where's the, and she, she immediately started looking for things, right? Where's the, and you know, because now all of a sudden it's all put away, but she didn't put it away. And so now she finds it and she's like, okay, now I got to remember where that is, right? And so all of us have that same issue. Now that's true no matter when you move, right? No matter when you move. But when you move after living in the same house for 30 years, 40 years, some people 50 or more years, it's, it's kind of like, it, it's automatic. You know exactly where everything is. And you're used to knowing exactly where everything is. And so what happens is now you've got to relearn everything, right? You've got to relearn everything. And it can be done. It just takes a little work. Okay. So myth number three, moving is moving. All moves are the same. Yes or no? No, that's why it's a myth, right? So the truth is some moves could be more complex and emotional depending on the circumstances. So for move purposes, I put the priority is to create or use an existing plan proven to make the process less complicated and manageable. That's what we're going to be talking about today is the proven plan, okay, the step-by-step. Myth number four, when moving a family member to assisted living, 
Getting new sheets, furniture, and matching towels will be appreciated because the apartment will look nicer. Okay? Now, you laugh, but I will tell you how many people have moved into assisted living that the daughter comes bebopping in from Target and she's got all new stuff. Because it looks better, it smells better, it's fresher, right? It matches. Well, the truth is, moving to a new place in our later years or when we're ill or recovering from surgery and that kind of thing, having familiar items is far more important than being what we call matchy-matchy, right? Um, having your own smell, having your own pillow, having your own pillowcase. We even tell people sometimes, especially if someone has memory impairment, not to wash their sheets when they come. Like, they'll want to wash everything before they come. Now, obviously, if they're spoiled, that's different. But let's say mom or dad only slip on those sheets one night. It's certainly, it's certainly okay to bring those because the, uh, the, the familiarity of the odor is actually a really good thing, right? The fragrance of your own house is a good thing. All right, and the other thing about that, I made a note to myself that when you're moving, the priority is to make the place feel like home. And of course, that will depend on what stage of life you're in. Now, many of you in this room may say, you know what, when I move, I'm buying all new furniture, I'm buying all new decor, I'm going to create the house that I've always wanted. That's great. That, if, you're in, uh, if you're in level one, two, and three of that chart I showed you, that makes total sense. Right? You can totally recreate and reinvent your house if you want to, and it wouldn't be a problem. But beyond that, if someone is frail or vulnerable, 99% of people do not want to recreate their new house. They want to use their stuff. Right? It's familiar. All right. Myth number five, family members can coordinate and help me move just as effectively as a professional service, and it will save me a lot of money. Now, this is partly a myth, but partly true, in that could you save a lot of money? You personally might save a lot of money. You personally. But guess what? Jake, I need another mic. This is going to make me crazy. Um, the, the other thing is, is your family member that has to take off work for three days to come do it or fly out from out of country or out of state, they're not saving money. And so I have family members say, well, my daughter's going to come out. She's going to spend a week helping me. I'm like, oh, so she's taking vacation time. Yep. So now she's taking her vacation time to come help you do something to save you money. But how is that affecting her? So what I have found, and I made a note, that uh, you know, sometimes family members would be more than happy to help, pay people to do it, if that meant that they could come and spend time with you doing only the things they really wanted to do, and spend time with you instead. I have family members who will honestly pay us to do a lot of the things that they could do, but when they come out, they would rather spend time doing the things with their family member that they want to do together, like, like hang the pictures, right? That makes total sense. Or to organize the kitchen. But they don't want to spend time packing. They don't want to spend time washing the toilets after you move out. They'd rather spend time with you doing things that make more sense to them. So, uh, I mentioned, you know, and this is not a commercial for what we do. This is just uh, because this is our experience and we've been doing this for so long that uh, we've kind of got this down, right? And so, I, I want to give you a little context, a little background before I dive into the downsizing made easy steps. So, years ago, I used to give seminars at senior living communities 
And over time, the five steps turned into this book that we have, that we give our clients when we do a consultation. And it's called The Five Easy Steps to a Successful Move. And the five easy steps is actually more like 35 easy steps, but my marketing people said I needed to narrow it down to five, right? So we narrowed it down to five, and that's what we've been kind of using for several years. But then, most recently, when we started the Downsizers Clubs that we created uh, to walk people through the actual process, we expanded it back out to 10. And so that's what I'm gonna go over today, is the 10 steps. And you have that in front of you, it's called the Downsizing Made Easy Method. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna walk us through these and in the context of uh, priorities. In other words, we're going to talk about what the step is, and you can read the paragraph yourself here. But I'm going to talk about where people mess up on each of these steps and how they can avoid messing up. And that's whether you use somebody like us to do it or you do it yourself or your kids help you. It doesn't matter. Uh, the priorities uh, are the same. It's just a matter of who's doing it that changes. Okay? So does everybody have the downsizing made easy method? The downsizing made easy method in front of them? Okay, perfect. Alright, All right, we're gonna dive in. Yeah, real quick, Lynn, you got a question? Uh, or a comment? Or how many percentage-wise actually move? So I do a talk um, once or twice a year on downsizing. I have a slide that says everybody downsizes. Uh, and the slide has a picture on it, and the picture has a coffin on it. And so the answer to that is everybody eventually moves. Uh, the answer to the question, how many people move voluntarily, I don't have the answer to. Okay, um, I could probably find that statistic, but I will tell you that if you want a, a statistic that's interesting to us, being in real estate, is every home, out of all the homes sold across the United States, all every year, right now, the number of those sales involving somebody over the age of 55 is 50%. So every home sold, about 50% are people over 55, roughly 28% are people over 67. So does that help a little bit just to kind of know uh, if you're looking at pure data? Now, that doesn't tell you how many percentage of the population, it just tells you the percentage of the actual sales out there. Okay. All right, very good. And so now that you've asked that question, it's going to bug me and I'll have to go find out. All right. <laughs> Thank you for that. So selecting a new residence. The very first step in deciding to move is where am I going to move, right? I can't tell you how many people put their house on the market, call a realtor, the realtor goes out, says, yeah, I'm happy to put your house on the market. They don't ask you where you're going to move. They assume that you know you do not want to put your house on the market until you know where you're going to move. Because as soon as you get a contract on your house, the timer starts ticking, right? 30 days, 45 days, 60 days, whatever it is you agreed to, now you have to find a place to live 
get moved into it, empty out the house, and do everything you need to do, and you're on a time crunch. So we recommend you find the house that you want to move to, and if it's a senior community, uh, many people are, you know, on a waiting list. They know they want to move to a certain place. Right now, I know Concordia has a waiting list. I know Touchmark has a waiting list. I know most of the communities around that are uh, continuing care communities have a waiting list. So you can find the residents, but you also need to know that you have access to the residents. If it's new construction, let's say you're building a house. The, the builder tells you that the house is going to be finished in October. Chris, when is it really going to be finished? January. January or February. Yeah, so just because you say we okay, have a contract with the builder, it's going to be done in January, uh, we need to make sure, or October, we need to make sure that you actually have a move-in date because everything is based on that date. Um, it, I can't even tell you how many real estate agents contact us uh, regularly and say, hey, I have a client, I've got a contract on their house, can you give me the name of an estate sale person? And I'm like, well, how much time do you have? They go, well, we need it done in the next two weeks. This is not possible, you guys, right? So that person now has to either cancel their contract with their, the house, or they have to extend it. And sometimes buyers cannot extend that far. So very important. Okay, so number two on the things that go into moving is selecting your furnishings, household belongings, and personal items that you want to move. Now, what is the, uh, the misalignment that I referred to on this step? Well, what most people want to do is they want to go through and decide what they're not going to keep first. They get terribly concerned. It's amazing. And this is a true story. We get there and we go, okay, you're ready to move. You've chosen a place. We know exactly where you're going to go. We need to do a floor plan. And the person will say, no, I need to pull all that stuff down out of the attic. Why? Was that you go through it? Why? Well, because I do. No, no, you don't. Not yet. We might need to, but not yet. Because here's what happens. You pull all that stuff down out of the attic, what happens? Chaos happens, right? Now your garage is full, um, and 99% of the accidents that happen that cause people injury during a move happen in what location, do you think? The garage. Yep. And so can we hold off on the attic and the stuff in the attic until we have actually dealt with what we call the essentials? So what you see here is a picture of my friend Virginia down in Georgetown working with her client on a floor plan. The very first thing you're going to do after you choose where you're going to live is you're going to get a floor plan. And if we do it, we'll do it for you. If we don't do it, you need to do it, which means a piece of graph paper, uh, and if you're particularly techie or you have a son or daughter that's an architect, they're going to want to do it online. That's totally fine. We're very old school. We take a piece of graph paper, we draw it out, we it's scale, we draw the furniture on it so that you know what furniture will actually fit. Then we go through and we mark all the furniture and we put numbers on it. So like that table would have a number on it. And that number would correspond to the location that it's going to go on the floor plan. Now, the reason for that is when the movers move that stuff, they walk in the house. The first thing they do if they don't know where to put it is they say, what? Where does this go? Where do you want this? Imagine answering that question 63 times in the course of two hours. It's exhausting. 
So what we do is we alleviate that problem and we just number everything. And then we take a floor plan on the wall or on the door or on the cabinet or wherever it makes sense so that the movers go, okay, this is number one, okay, back bedroom, and they know exactly where to put it. Okay? So if you're outside dealing with Cox Cable, <laughs> the movers can still move you in. Make sense? Okay. So uh, a couple more things on that real quick. Uh, selecting furnishings, household items, and personal items you plan to keep is the key. You can underline the word keep there. It's really easy to get distracted and go, okay, you go into the, uh, let's say just the uh, linen closet. And you look at the linen closet and you go, okay, I definitely want to keep all of everything on this shelf. And then everything on this shelf, I probably want to give to my daughter or donate. And then you get distracted. And you go, okay, I'm going to pull all that out. I'm going to call my daughter and see if she wants it. She doesn't want it, so I'm going to call my granddaughter and see if she wants it. And then guess what happened? Three hours later, you have not made it through the closet. Right? So what we like to do is we take that same blue tape and we go in and we put tape on the things that you say you definitely want, right? We identify the things you definitely want first, and we, we focus on essentials, right? The things that you really need and have to have first, and then we go back through and do the would like to have stuff, right? The other extra stuff. We don't worry about the stuff that you don't want, the big uh, air fryer that's up in the top of the shelf in the pantry, and you go, I definitely don't want that. We're going to go, great, let's move on. We're not going to say, who are we going to give it to? We're not going to say it needs to go on sale. We're not going to do any of that yet. Does it make sense? Okay. Number three, scheduling the movers. Now, this is the interesting thing. I pulled this up this morning uh, just to see because it kind of hit me. You know, a lot of people, when they're looking for movers, they just Google it or they ask somebody or they look online. And I Googled moving companies in Oklahoma City, and it, you can't read this from there, but it says 41,600 results. Oh, I'm sorry, 41,600,000 results. How's that possible? Isn't that what it says? Yeah. And, and, and I said, okay, so then I looked at the list, and the majority of the list were sponsored ads. Then you get down to the people who didn't pay to have a sponsored ad, and you go, okay, a lot of those are people where you click on it, it's not the actual mover, it's somebody who is going to connect you with the mover, and they're going to get paid when they connect you with that mover. And by the way, all of those people want you to book online. So our moving team has two movers that we kind of toggle back and forth with that we like. They're local movers. If we have interstate movers, we have favorites for that too. But we pick up the phone and call them and ask them questions because we have their direct line. Uh, just yesterday, I had a gentleman in my condo complex. He's moving his mom from uh, her home in Nichols Hills to a memory care. And he said, Nikki, I need help with a mover. And I said, great, no problem. And so he said, uh, who should I call? And I said, nobody. I said, let me call them first. 
So I called them, talked on the phone with them, said, hey, you have October 28th in the morning between 9.30 and 10.30 available. And they said, yeah, we can make that happen. I said, great, here, you're going to get a call from this gentleman. I gave him his name and number. When he called at 2 o'clock, they answered the phone and said, yes, we were expecting your call. That's how it should work. But that's not how it works if we try to use a mover that we don't have a relationship with. Right? Does that make sense? It's, it's, a, it's a mess. And if you use a mover that you don't have a relationship with, they also want your credit card first. Matter of fact, to book a mover these days, you have to give them a credit card. So now when you decide not to use them, guess what? You better call and cancel because you're either going to have two movers show up or you're going to get your credit card and you're going to get your credit card charged whether you like it or not. So we don't have to do that because they know that we're good for it and that our clients are good for it because we use them regularly. So there are some advantages to that. So the, the moral of the story is all movers are not the same. And by the way, uh, there are movers out there who do not have uh, employees. They don't employ people to move. They have day laborers. So they pick people up as needed. Those day laborers, as you can imagine, are not quite as good as the guys who do it every day and are employed by the movers. So scheduling movers is very important. Uh, it's also step number three. Why do you think it's step number three and it's not way down the line? Because it takes time, right? Especially if you have a very specific move-in date. If you're shooting for a very specific targeted move-in date, you've got to do it far enough in advance that you can get that date. Otherwise, you won't get the mover you want on the date that you want. Okay, the next one, getting packed, moved, and resettled. Getting packed, moved, and resettled. That's a big one, and it's all lumped into one step. And the reason for that, <coughs> The reason for that is largely because the way our process works is, as I showed you before, we've, we've identified what you're going to move, right? We've, we've labeled it. Now, rather than taking several weeks to pack and then forgetting what's in the boxes or wishing you hadn't packed it because you'd like to be able to use it that day, right? We pack it all at one time right before the move. So we go in with, you know, five five people if it's a big move, two people if it's a smaller move, and they go through and they basically pack it all, label it, they know exactly what's in the box, and then that stuff gets moved the next day. And then the reselling part, you may go, be going, really, Nikki, why is that all lumped into one thing? Our philosophy is the quicker you can resettle, the quicker your stress level goes down. So the very first thing that, and if you have family helping you, these are the recommendations I have, is to kind of do it the way we do. The first thing that we do is, we, well, a couple things. First thing is wardrobe boxes. If you hang your clothes in wardrobe boxes to move them, those come out of the wardrobe boxes into the closet and they get hung up and empty and then broken down and taken out. Because why? They're big. They take up too much space, right? And so now you're having to work around them, and it's hard to do. So when the movers pull those off the, off the truck, that's done immediately, okay? So that takes up, that space is gone. So then you've got, uh, you've got people who will go in and say, okay, I'm going to unpack the bathroom, and all the toiletry items that you normally would use, 
uh, on a regular basis are going to get unpacked and put away in your bathroom. By the way, you'll have toilet paper the minute you walk in. You guys have all moved before and you went, oh my goodness, right? What did I forget? Where's the toilet paper pack? Okay, so bathroom, kitchen, bedroom, very important. So the first thing that gets set up in your bedroom is your bed. Your bed gets made with your bedding. Um, this is a very important thing, by the way, those of you who might be helping a family member move to a retirement community like assisted living, one of the first things you want to set up is the bed because they're going to be tired when they get there, right? This is an overwhelming process, so the bed is a very important function of that. So the key to us on day one, when the movers unload, we want everything <laughs> unboxed and put away by around five or six o'clock that day. Now that's not going to be your like decorative items that go in the shelf or things on the walls, right? If you have a if you're moving into a fairly large house, a three bedroom or something like that, that's not all going to be done on the first day. But if you move into an assisted living or a two bedroom uh, apartment out of retirement community, guess what? By the end of the day, it looks like you've lived there forever. Now, things may or may not be on the wall. That would be up to you. But when I pulled pictures, I thought it was fun. I used this program called Canva to create these slides. And when I pulled up people moving, this is the picture I got. And I just laughed. And so I scrolled down and I looked at more pictures. And it didn't matter. They all looked happy. And they all looked like they were having so much fun. And I was like, that is such bull. That's more of what it looks like over there. Uh, and so, and I only found a couple of those pictures, right? And so, this is very interesting. Yeah. I think the myth that I hear most often is that it will take me forever to get settled in somewhere. And if you listen to the people that we felt, they'll tell you that within a few days they were settled in. It doesn't mean they could find everything immediately. Uh, it doesn't mean that they didn't reorganize some things after the fact because they found that it would be better in a different way. That's always going to be the case. But everything had a place and the boxes are out of the way. This is an actual picture that I took. It's only a partial picture. There's actually more boxes. That is a pile of boxes from the second day of the move from independent living to assisted living. Go ahead, take that in. This couple had more stuff than I can even tell you. It, it was a big move. And what I realized was that this couple, um, they had mobility challenges, both of them. Um, every single time they even got close to a box, I got nervous. Why? Yep, see these right here? Flaps, the flaps on the box. Absolutely a nightmare. Uh, fall risk, big time fall risk. Uh, I end up with paper cuts. I know our team, they end up with paper cuts on their legs from walking by the boxes and things, right? We, we've all tripped on boxes. Here's the difference between Jake tripping on a box in his 30s and falling on his face and somebody who is in that category of say four, five, six, or seven tripping and falling on a box. What's the difference? Jake's going to get up, and he's going to curse a little bit, and he's going to be mad, and he's going to be a little embarrassed and maybe even bruised, but he's not going to have a broken hip. 
and he's going to be just fine. He's going to keep working. But the, uh, the client that we're moving, had they fallen on that box, they would have been in the hospital, right? So what we try to do is minimize that by being the one to unbox things and then break the boxes down immediately and get rid of them so that nobody's tripping on them. Okay? Again, you guys are in the one, two, and three category. Accidents still can still happen, and you're probably going to be fine, uh, a little bit irritated. But I'm talking about like if you're helping a family member or a friend, it's oh, we're just going to do it ourselves. Those are the things that make me nervous. So we've resettled. Um, like that in the hallway at her place. Right? Um, now, I will tell a little secret. So that's the hallway. There's a bedroom behind the hallway. We hung a picture in there, knocked five of those pictures off the wall onto the floor. <laughs> Nobody's perfect, right? None of them broke, thankfully, um, we, but, but definitely I was embarrassed. Okay, so the bedroom, uh, that you see there with the bed and the chest and everything. That was done by about 3 o'clock that afternoon. Does that look like she could go in and enjoy her own space and be in her bedroom right away? Okay. When we say finalize resettling, what we mean is finalizing resettling. We mean hanging pictures, lamps are where they need to be, everything is uh, either you know labeled or at least locatable and everybody knows where it is. And sometimes for people that is within 24, 48 hours. For some people, they don't want to do it that fast. And they say, come back next week. Uh, I'd rather wait after I've had a chance to kind of just feel the space and get adjusted to it and then come back. Um, other people say, you know what? My daughter's coming in a month. She's going to be here for a long weekend. I'm going to wait on her and we're going to do it together. Everybody's a little bit different as it relates to that final resettling process. And it really depends on your goals and your support system. Okay, the next one. Emptying the previous residence. Emptying the previous residence. So you've moved out, and if you did downsize, not everybody will downsize, but if you did downsize, there's going to be stuff left at the previous house, right? So what to do with that is the question. Now, I mentioned earlier, all we were going to focus on is what you were going to what? Keep. This is where we focus on the stuff you didn't want to keep. But there's a gap in time. So part of that resettling process back there on step five is sometimes people decide that there's some stuff they moved that they really don't want after all. It didn't fit right or they don't like it now and take it back to the old house. In other cases, we you know, get there and they go, you know what, Mickey, there was that big plant that I didn't bring because I didn't think there'd be a place for it, but now I'm looking and it would go right there. And it's like, yeah, let's go get that, right? So it gives you time 
to make some final decisions about what goes and what stays without the timeline of the clicking time clock on a contract on your house or something like that, right? So you've got, so some people like that resettling phase and this emptying phase. They like to do it over, say, a couple of weeks or three weeks or a month. Other people, once they're out of that house, they move, they go and done, I'm out, do whatever you want to with what's left. So we look at what's left and then we help you evaluate whether or not there is sufficient stuff left to have an estate sale, if you want to have an estate sale, or if it would be better to donate it. A lot of people these days are saying, you know what, Nikki, just let's just donate it to a good cause. They think of a charitable organization that they'd like things to go to, and we coordinate that. Now, that is not as easy as one might think. Does anybody here have a piano or an organ? Yep. Start looking now. I'm not joking when I say that. If you have a large instrument in your house, a, especially a piano or an organ or something along those lines, and you want to get money for it, good luck. If you want to donate it, good luck. Because churches right now have more than they can use. Schools don't want them. Uh, a lot of these places are now using keyboards, you know, instead of uh, actual wooden, you know, pianos. So it's very difficult to get rid of one. So our room management team will oftentimes, you know, go to great lengths to find a home, a good home, ideally, for those items. This is not always possible. So uh, if you have one of those and you know you're going to move in the next, you know, few years, go ahead and start putting the feelers out for that. You know where mine is, my piano? It's in a uh, uh, old uh, railroad car storage thing, and it I'm in a railroad car, one of those big metal container, shipping container, shipping container, <clears throat> sitting in my aunt and uncle's yard. It's 109 degrees outside. Do you think that piano is going to be playable when they pull that out of there? Not a chance, right? It, it's going to have to just be disposed of. It's depressing, right? But it is what it is. Yeah. So how much is that? How much is that sentimental piano costing you every month? Yeah. So and that's what happens. She said that she's got her mom's piano and it's in storage, temperature control storage, and she's paying for it. Hold that thought. I'm gonna come back to you because here's the thing. If you have solutions, I'm gonna have time for Q and A, and we'll talk about those. But be starting now. I also pulled up how many estate sale companies in Oklahoma City. Uh, Twenty-one. That is that a million. It says million. I can't even imagine that being accurate. But you know why they do that? Is because if you click on one, it's going to give you a whole, like a hundred of them. And I think they duplicate that number every time they have one of those. But we know there's not 21 million of those in Oklahoma City. Can we all agree? Okay. So here's what happened. I said, well, you know what? I'm going to narrow it down and I'm going to click on, let's, let's find the one closest to me. So I, put the, I clicked on the button. Uh, uh, this button's not up there, but I clicked on the button that said closest to me, and it, it went from that number to 20, to 35 million. <laughs> it went up instead of down. I'm like, this can't be right. So then I scrolled down, obviously, and I looked again like I did with the movers, 
And here's the, the common mis misconception on this particular issue of estate sales is that uh, I can just call an estate liquidator and they'll come out and do a sale for me. And the reality of it is there are, first of all, maybe 35 estate liquidators in Oklahoma City right now that are what I would consider full-time professional estate liquidators. There are lots more than that, people who do it part-time on the side, it's a side hustle, they do it for friends or whatever. And at the end of the day, all of them are doing it to make money. They're not doing it out of the goodness of their heart. So they charge a fee. Now, they go in, they look at what you have left, and what they're doing is they're looking at it and they're evaluating what? How much money they can make based on how much you have for them to sell. So they look around and they, okay, let's say that they look around and they go, okay, there's going to be, this going to be a $5,000 sale. $5,000 worth of stuff. They're going to make 35% of that. Can somebody do the math for me? What's 35% of 5,000? About 1,600. Okay, Jim, thank you. He has a math mind over here. All right. So, and so they're going to go into your home if they take on your sale. They're going to go into your home. They're going to spend about a week or two setting it up, pricing everything. Then they're going to staff it for two days, usually over the weekend. And so that's about an eight to ten hour day, depending on how they do it. Usually going to have at least two people, if not three, depending on the size of your home and the location. And so now, once they have paid labor to do all of that, how much are they actually making out of that $1,600? Not enough. So they're going to decline to do your sale unless they are a good friend and they're doing it as a favor. Okay? Now, there are estate liquidators out there. Most of them will tell you, I'm looking for a $30,000 sale. That's the minimum they're looking for, $30,000. And then they're gonna make their 35% or so off of that. There are a few that'll do it for less, but here's what will happen. Just giving you a heads up, and this is nothing against them. This is just how it works. So let's say, um, Bob, they come in, they say, uh, the estate liquidator says, you know what, I'm gonna do your sale. It's gonna be about a $15,000 sale. We're happy to do it. We're gonna set it for, two months from now, because that's about how far out they are sometimes. So your house is now empty, you've moved, you've got stuff in it, I say empty, you're not living in it, it's got stuff in it, two months from now they're gonna do a sale. But guess what happens in that two months? They get a phone call from Frances, and Frances has a house, and she's got a $30,000 sale. And so you know what they do? They bump you, they're going to do yours in another month, they're going to do Francis' first. Now that will tell you that. Or, God forbid, they get COVID. Or they have a, someone who's sick in their life that they have to care for because then they just keep pushing it out, right? These are human beings, just like all of us. So what happens is that that sale that you thought was going to happen two months from now is now six months from now. And we're into December, and it's freezing cold, and you're worried about the house because pipes are going to freeze. So our goal as the realtors on the case, is we want your house emptied as quick as possible because where's your equity? In the $5,000 worth of stuff you have or in the house? The equity in the house. So our intention is to get the house sold so you can get the equity out of it. And if you get some money out of the stuff, hallelujah. Now that is the, there are exceptions to that rule, 
for what I call the, the average household, um, it's not worth it to wait that long to empty the house. If you happen to have high-value collectibles um, that you know for a fact are worth thousands, that's a different strategy altogether, and we can talk about that offline. But for those of us who have average stuff and average houses and average neighborhoods, then you have basically three options. You either donate it to a charitable organization, you do an estate sale. We have a couple of places that do online estate sales. I'm not here to teach about that today because it takes too long. But they basically do, uh, they come in, they inventory everything, they put it up on the internet, and they sell it in seven days. It's all sold, and people come and pick it up on the seventh day or somewhere around there, and the house is empty. Okay, And that can all be done in about two weeks. And we do a lot of those. Uh, we have a vendor that does those we work with very closely because most people don't want their house sitting there uh, exposed without them living there. Okay, now we're going to go to step number seven, which is the real fun part after you've moved and everything's out of the house, you've cleaned out the house, now it needs to be clean. Uh, I don't know how many of you have moved recently, but I have a housekeeper that comes every two weeks, and I promise you, she does not clean under my washer and dryer. <laughs> now, about twice a year, she does clean behind my refrigerator, I found out, which is nice of her, right? But there are places in your house that your housekeeper, even if you're a good housekeeper, cannot get to. So when you move out, your house will look gross. And so it has got to be cleaned before the next person can move in. So either you're going to clean it or somebody's going to clean it. Right? And how many of you, your daughter can't wait to clean your house after you move out? <laughs> right? Right? Most of us are like, I will pay somebody to do that. This right here, not exciting at my own house, much less someone else's house. Right? But there are people who do this for a living. They're happy to do it, they charge for it, and we can hire them. This is the other thing, and that is a handyman. Many, many times people, this is the mistake people make, is they go in and they try to fix everything that they need to fix, that they think they need to fix before they put their house on the market without asking their realtor. And Shannon uh, will go in and do a complete evaluation. Boy, they're having fun over there. That's where we're going next. Uh, so they'll do a complete evaluation, they'll walk through the house, and they'll tell you things that have to be fixed, that really need to be fixed, and things that can be left just the way they are. And that way you can save yourself money and time and energy from having to repair things that don't need to be repaired. But if you're going to have things repaired, then we have a handyman that can come out and take care of that. Now here's what happens. We ask the person before we move them. After your move and after the house is empty, would you like us to get estimates for a house cleaner to clean the house? And you know what they say? No, I'll just go back over and do it. And then they move. And then we say, are you going to clean the house? That's what we had written down. Oh, no. Would you get somebody over there, please, to get, get that house cleaned? Because right? now they're tired. Right? Now they're tired. So uh, again, these are things that we kind of preemptively do. Now you aren't obligated by any means to use a housekeeper. Uh, you use your own housekeeper, but it, the house does have to be clean. And minor repairs, you'll want to have those made. All right, and then we're getting towards the end here. Oops, 
marketing the house for sale. This is the easy part. This is the, the part that a lot of people don't realize is that at this point, um, our team has done all the hard work. The hard work is getting people from point A to point B and getting the house emptied and clean and ready to sell. Selling the house, that's the easy part for us. We make the majority of our money doing everything getting you prepared to sell the house and then once the house is under contract. We, right now in our current market, what you need to know is that um, up until just recently, it's been really easy. In fact, we could stick a sign in the yard and we'd have 20 offers the next day. That shift, my friends, has sailed. Okay? Uh, our job just got harder again because there are fewer buyers. There's still not a lot of houses, but in some price points, we still get multiple offers. But in some price points, the houses are sitting on the market longer. The houses, uh, people are a little bit more particular about the houses now, where there for a while they weren't doing inspections, it was cash as is, multiple offers. Now, uh, it's not. I'm also going to tell you that if you're going to follow this process, what step are we on? Look at your piece of paper, what step are we on? Eight. You have known since step one that you're going to move, right? And chances are you've started telling people that you're going to move. Uh, I don't necessarily recommend that. And the reason is because um, you're going to end up with people, first of all, you haven't gotten rid of everything. There are people who are going to want your stuff. So you say, well, you know I'm going to move, I'm going to downsize. And you have neighbors who really like that potted plant on the front patio. And guess what? They're going to want it. And so now you've got a field of people saying, can I have that? Can I have that? Some stuff you're glad to get rid of, but they're not going to want the piano. They're going to want the stuff that you want to sell because you can get money for it. So same way with the house. Uh, you are going to, once you have told one person, that will spread. And then you're going to get every neighbor in your neighborhood is going to have a friend who wants to buy your house. Every neighbor in your neighborhood is going to have a friend, now I'm going to add a criteria, who is an investor who wants to buy your house. Okay? There's a difference between the neighbor who has a daughter who wants to live there and the neighbor who has a friend who has a son who wants to make $50,000 by buying your house cheap. So we recommend that long before this step, that we've done some sort of an evaluation for you to tell you what your home is worth so that if you do receive those kinds of offers, you can laugh at them confidently. Okay, you can just say, no thank you, call my realtor. If you really want to make that offer, let me know, right? Because right now, guys, investors are desperate. Because there's not enough houses for them to buy. And so they are definitely, um, you guys getting some cards in the mail? Pay cash for your house? Yeah, telephone calls, text messages, door knocks, you name it. Yeah, we are too, by the way. Right? I had one the other day, a text message that said, well, I'll be happy to buy your property, cash, sight and scene, before you get a realtor involved because they just get in the way. <laughs> Love it. I'm going to call this guy. I didn't call but I did just laugh. Okay, so now you've got your house on the market. This is really where we make our money, and that is dealing with the offers, uh, the showings, the offers, and the home closing itself. Right now, Chris and Shannon uh, on our team are about to pull their hair out, and Kim, in some cases, uh, with buyers as well. 
because lenders are a problem, title companies are a problem, buyers are a problem, buyers agents are a problem, appraisers are a problem. Is there anybody else I need to name? Over home inspectors and roof people are a problem. Uh, yeah? Insurance. Oh, and insurance. Okay, so you can, the list gets long, right? And what I mean by a problem is that every step of the process is a potential problem. Not, not every transaction is a problem. 99% of the time, a problem is dealt with without you even knowing about it because we've dealt with it and you don't need to know about it. But there are some problems that have to be brought to your attention to get uh, your agreement or your response on. But when the reason I bring up this piece is that one of the biggest challenges a lot of our clients face right now when they use a realtor that is not us, and a lot of times that's because they're not in our area or maybe they're helping a family member and they've got a realtor already or whatever, the realtors by and large across the board are doing things electronically, digitally. Um, they send you the e they send you the link. They say, look at the document on your phone and sign it digitally on your phone that you agree. Now, how many of you looked at your phone lately and went? <laughs> oh, there it is. Right now, read a seven-page contract and sign it on your phone. I don't recommend anybody do that. We don't do that. So what we want to see is we want to see a piece of paper, we want to see a pen, and we want to sit down with someone and we want to go over it so that they understand it and know what they're signing. Most realtors do not do it that way now. Now some do, not all, but some do. Um, if you like to do things in pen and paper and you happen to have a different realtor, tell them, I want it on paper. And they will say, well, you can print it. I know, but I want you to print it. And I want you to bring it to me and go over it with me. Okay? So you can do that. You can request that. You have every right to do that. Um, it's a big problem in other states. I know in Florida, a lot of the agents, they never even meet their client. They do the listing online. They do the disclosures online. They do everything by phone or by text. They do this contracts online and they don't go to closings. So you never actually meet the realtor. But you just wrote them a check for 6% of the sales price of your house. So, you know, it's interesting how that worked. Okay, the last step is the happy dance. And what I mean by the happy dance is this is where you reflect and you celebrate and you rest. And this is also where um, hopefully you do some sort of housewarming party. Um, as you uh, get settled in a little bit. So I'm going to take questions. And uh, what I'd love to do is be able to answer questions that you have about the process, um, about, well, really anything that we talked about today. So uh, I saw a hand over here um, that you had earlier. Yep. Yeah. I just wondered, who would you call to move a piano? Uh, we generally will call uh, Larson's. Um, music first, and then Jake, who else? Uh, anybody else for piano moving? Bentley's piano. Bentley's yeah. piano. There you go. He just moved. Yep. What was the first one? Uh, Larson's. Mm -hmm. And by the way, if one of the solutions, uh, Larson's has a, uh, I forget what it's called, they have a program 
that I want to say it's a not-for-profit even, but what they do is they supply uh, low-income families or people who can't otherwise afford instruments with instruments. So let's say you have a family that wants their kids to have piano lessons, but they can't afford a piano. Larson's will take your piano as a donation, give it to that family, have it tuned and all that stuff, and then when the child either no longer needs it or wants it, they'll come get it, and they'll put it into like this rotation. Now, they don't always need them, so it's not like you can you know, maybe write that minute, but that is one solution I like because it is getting used that way. Yeah. Yeah, Walt at Larson's. Yeah, he's the guy, and he's the one that does that. Yeah. I have another question. Does anyone move a piano with them? Oh, yeah, no, that's a great question. Can you move a piano with you to a community? Absolutely, yeah. As long as there's space, uh, it can go there. They, they won't say no to that. Um, independent living, uh, for sure. Uh, assisted living is a little trickier just due to space. But um, the other option is if the community does not have a piano for community use, you, and you play. This is, the difference is you play. This isn't mom and dad's piano, you just need to get rid of it. This is I play and I'm moving here. Can I put my piano someplace where I can play it? And they will oftentimes find a place for you to have your piano and the people enjoy it because somebody's actually playing. Yeah. Good question. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. So her question is, after an estate sale, if there are items left that didn't sell from the estate sale, what do you do? What are your options with what's left? So on a traditional estate sale where the person comes in and marks everything and people are coming in and out and buy, then there's almost always stuff left, right? Rarely would there not be stuff left. So in that case, the estate liquidator usually has a plan for that. And you'll want to ask them, what is your plan for that? And what they'll usually tell you is they have a couple of options. They will, uh, they have people they call buyout people. And they keep those tight to their chest, by the way. They don't share those very often with people because uh, they don't want you to just call them direct. So they call their buyout person. And let's say you have some stuff left and the buyout person pays $300 for it and they haul it all off. Then that gets included as part of your sale and you, they take a percentage of that for brokering that deal, okay? The other option is they'll say, we'll just leave it and you can deal with it, which I don't recommend because you will have a harder time dealing with it than they will. Uh, the third option is they will donate it. So they will call a charitable organization or have it hauled to a charitable organization to donate it, get your receipt, and if you have the ability to deduct that on your taxes, then you can do that. that answer your question? Those are not great options, but those are the options. Now, I will say this. That's one of the reasons we like the online auction. Because on the online auction, what they do is they go through the house and they get rid of things they know won't sell. And when I say get rid of, I mean dispose of. I mean in a dumpster. And so they're going to go through, clean everything out that they know won't sell. They're going to put all the things that they know have value in the auction. So 99% of it is going to get sold on the online auction, even if it sells for a dollar. It's getting sold. And I like that because that means that whenever they leave that house, it is completely emptied, and we literally can get our house cleaner in the next day, right, Jake? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it's very turnkey. Uh, we prefer that option. And by the way, they don't really charge more 
Uh, maybe a small amount more because they have a setup fee, but their percentage is the same as what all the other state liquidators charge. So Audrey's asking about the seminar coming up, uh, and yeah, so she said it's called, it's called Choosing an Advocate, and in our world, an advocate is somebody who um, is like your, your go-to person if you're in the hospital, and let's say, like right now, Bob's your advocate, right? But let's say something happened, and you guys were in a car accident, and you're in separate rooms at different hospitals, who's your advocate? Who's the person who's going to show up, and when they say... We're sending her home today. Goes, uh, no, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. She's not ready. We're not ready. She's not going home. Who's that person? The other thing I think of when I think of an advocate is somebody who um, could be that person that you call if you get a phone call and it seems a little wonky and you're not sure if it's a scam that you can call and you can say, hey, let me run this by you or let me show you this email. Is this legit or is it not? That's an advocate. An advocate might be a formal advocate, like an ombudsman at a senior living community, somebody who mediates between you and the community. So that's what we're going to be talking about at that seminar, is what is an advocate, what do they do, and what kind of advocates do we all need in our life, all, doesn't matter your age, we all need advocates. So that's what that seminar is about. Good question, Audrey. Yeah. <coughs> How do you structure your meetings? For example, uh, I say I found a place in a assisted living, and I came to you and I said, I want you to get me there and sell my house and do all the things you talked about. They say, this, that, the other. How much is that going to cost you? Yeah, well, yeah. How, yeah, how much is it going to cost you? Right. How do you structure your yeah. Good how, question. How do you take care of the banking and all these people do these things? I know the commission for selling the house. Right, right. Okay, so his question is, how do you structure the fees if he were to hire someone like us to do all the things that we kind of talk about? So every uh, service provider that does what we do is a little different, but most all of us charge an hourly rate, and the hourly rate is based on the number of people that we have, uh, so staff hours and uh, it's billed hourly. Uh, so most of the time we say, you know, this is how many hours we think it's gonna take, and then we give you an estimate based on that. So it's not a carte blanche. It's per hour, and when we're done, we're done. <laughs> yeah. we, we give you kind of a estimated uh, maximum, if you will, okay? Not all, the, not all people do that. So uh, hold that thought, and, I'm gonna, and then I'll break it down for you. So, there's what we call the move management services, and the move management services include, uh, and I have a team back here, Jake's here, and he kind of oversees all of that. When he goes out and meets with you, he's going to ask you what it is you need help with. And let's assume for a second it's everything I need, okay? And you're an able-bodied, capable person. You just want some help getting the mover, somebody there to pack you, get you resettled, do all those things. He's going to look at how much stuff you have in your house, um, where you're moving, because how much you have in your house is less relevant to us than the size of the place you're moving to, because you can only take so much. Okay? So the biggest expense that most people have falls in one of two categories for our services. 
One is either the sorting process, and that means making the decisions about what you're going to take, and the packing process. Okay, because if you are taking, let's say you have uh, 5,000 Hummels and you want them all packed to move and you want us to pack them, that's going to take a little time, right? But if you say, you know what, we have 5,000 Hummels, but we're going to pack those ourselves, then he's going to make a note of that and he's going to only estimate the time it takes to pack everything else. Okay, so what we do is we like to do an estimate for all of it. And then we tell you, okay, here's the total. And if you go, oh, I really can't do that. That's just more than I can stomach. Then we go, okay, where can we pare it down? Where can you do some things to save money or whatever? Um, so then, uh, of course, like I said, some people don't want us to unpack them. Um, but, you know, really that's probably one of the least expensive things is that we do it so fast. Um, so we like to do that if we can the other process uh, that you're going to pay for separately is the mover. So what we do, though, is we typically, if you're moving to a senior community usually or move, doing a local move, is you pay us and we pay the mover. So our estimate is going to include what we think the cost of the move is going to be, and then we only charge you actual cost. So if we estimate it's going to be a $4,000 mover expense, but it comes in at three, we're only charging you for the three. Does that make sense? So we don't upcharge the movers. Uh, some move management companies will go, okay, the movers charge three thousand. The movers charge three thousand. We're going to upcharge at ten percent. We don't do that. Um, we just manage it. Okay. Um, and then the estate liquidators. Um, our what our services include is us identifying the liquidators and then going and introducing you and meeting with you with them so that you understand the contract and everything, but your agreement is with them, uh, and their fees are generally 35 to 50%, depending on the size of the sale, plus any setup fees and uh, marketing fees they might have. But we go over all that with you. So our fee, just our move management fee, most of the time, uh, if you're moving to a local senior living community, Jake, correct me if I'm wrong, um, somewhere between, say, 3,500 and 5,000, yeah, for a one-bedroom. For a one-bedroom, okay. And that's based on somebody, because if you're a couple, let's say you're a husband and a wife, that's going to be on the higher side because there's two of you. And if it's a single person, it's going to be less because there's only one of you, right? If there's a garage, then it's going to take longer than if there's no garage, right? But we'll give you that, like the hourly rate um, is, let me see if I get this right, Jake. So it's 75 an hour for the first person, and it's... 50? 45. 45 for the second person. If you're selling a house with us too, we give you a uh, discount on that. And what's the discount, Nick? 60 and 40. So what's the percent? Oh, I'm sorry, 15%. It's a 15% discount off that. So it, so for people who do both, we do give them a break on the move management services. So that makes sense. And then, of course, the real estate fees or whatever you negotiate. Um, our team typically charges 6%. Um, if we like you, if we don't, it can be as high as 10. <laughs> so if I like you a lot, a really a lot, then six is generally what we go. Yeah. Okay, it's a great question. So the question is, what if I have a house to sell and I'm going to move someplace 
and uh, there's a waiting list. Do I want to move temporarily someplace else and go ahead and do all that stuff in anticipation of the place you're moving? My response is usually no. One move is usually enough. So what we try to do is there's a couple of things that happen. So if someone owns their house outright, they have no mortgage on it. It's a whole lot easier to stomach moving someplace because you don't have that mortgage payment uh, burden, right? Um, but if you need the equity out of that house to say pay an entry fee or to utilize it towards your expense for moving, then there's that, it's like, well, I really need that money out of the house to do what I want to do. We have a local solution for that. We have a lender here in town that we go to, and what he does is he has a loan product. It's not a mortgage like a traditional mortgage that you have to jump through all these hoops. He basically does a loan. It's a short-term, temporary loan. And he says, okay, how much do you need? He'll do the loan based on the equity in your current house. And then there is a, uh, there's a fee, obviously, a, a more uh, interest rate that he would charge. But that's what most of our clients do as opposed to trying to move twice. It's actually cheaper to pay a little bit of a fee on a short-term loan than it is to try to move twice. Yeah. And we have, we've done that many times. It seems to work out pretty well for most people. Yeah, uh, Barbara, and then I'll come back up. Yeah. If you choose to do an auction or seek an auction house, such as for particular items uh, like Christie's in New York or Heritage in Dallas, what process would you go through would you physically have been having to? There usually, if you have to go through, if you're going through an auction house, you have something that you know is high value item, and you're going through a Christie's uh, or some one of the high end auction houses, they'll almost always do all the work. Um, at first, what they'll do is they'll have you send pictures and descriptions uh, on your phone or however, we can help facilitate that. But then they'll tell you, okay, if, uh, like we had a gentleman and he had a house full of different kinds of uh, uh, high-end, like uh, artwork, statues and things, right? Um, and so basically you contact them. They came out, they sent a representative out, they evaluated what he had, told him, gave him, you know, what their deal would be, and then took it back with them. So they'll do most of the legwork. If you just have one item, I don't know that they would do that, but if you have, you know, a significant amount, um, the other option, obviously, would be to ship it to them uh, for that, and then there's obviously a fee involved in that. If it doesn't sell, and you have to have it shipped back, that kind of thing. So yeah, those are few and far between for us, but we've we facilitated those as well. Yeah, I'm going to jump back real quick to um, Vanessa's question about the financing thing. One more thing about that: if you're moving to, let's say, like Spanish Cove or Concordia or one of the communities that has an entry fee program. And it's a significant entry fee, and you know that you're going to use your equity to pay that. We have arrangements with them. They are really good about, like, we tell them, okay, look, their house is going to sell for this amount, give or take. It's going to take about this long. They will wait on their entry fee. They'll take a smaller percentage, just kind of a deposit, like 10% or something, and then they will wait until that house is sold, and then they'll, you'll write them a check for it out of your equity. So that's the other option. So you don't have, they kind of said, you know, we hate for people to have to do financing if they don't have to, and they will do that. Yeah. Good question. Uh, there was another one back in the back, I think. 
Uh, my nieces are now uh, freshmen in college. Haley started this week at NOC and Enid. And her sister will be 18 in February. She's still in high school. But I've been kind of uh, serving as their co-guardian uh, alongside my dad and my brother with them for the last several years just to help out with their health care stuff and their school stuff and all that. Well, uh, it occurred to me when Haley was enrolling in college and turned 18 that that guardianship is no longer effective because she's an adult now. And so uh, I'm working with her now. We're going to do her HIPAA form. We're going to do her advanced directive. We're going to do a power of attorney just in case because if something happens to her and let's say she has a basketball injury, she goes to the hospital and she needs knee surgery, guess what? I couldn't go in and ask the doctor one single question legitimately and then talk to me because I have no legal authority, right? So it doesn't matter age. The minute someone is 18, they need an advocate, um, someone they can trust, and we've got to have legal documents. Gone are the days where your family doctor walks into the waiting room and says, ladies and gentlemen, let me update you on your loved one. No longer. Now we have to have a document that says they can talk to us. So to your point, thank you for that. Make sure you have your estate plan in place. Did everyone learn something today? Yes. On the back of your uh, handout, there is a place for action items. There's usually like three lines there that say action items. And what I recommend is when you leave here, either before you leave or when you get home, is that you do that. When you do that, uh, you go, okay, so what are the three action steps? And maybe you don't have three, maybe you have one, or maybe you have five, but there should be some action steps there today. And sometimes the action steps might be to help someone else with this or to pass the worksheet along. But uh, nonetheless, everyone should have some sort of an action step. Uh, last but not least, before we leave, we do have a group called the Oklahoma Downsizers Club. And if you're interested in, and you think, gosh, Nikki, you know, I'm going to move, but I'm not going to do it for another one, three, four, five years, but I want to get started. I want to understand the paperwork. I want to know what money I'm going to need. I want to know what the real estate documents look like, etc. This group meets monthly. Uh, it's led by our teams at OKC Mature Moves and Buckley Realty Group. And if you're interested in that, you can talk to Danielle or Jake uh, when you leave. They've got some flyers back there, and you can take one with you. I didn't pass them out because not everybody's interested in that. But if you are, Danielle, Vanna White back there has them. She'd be happy to give them to you. So turn to your neighbor and say, make it a most wonderful rest of your day. <laughs>